Welcome to Everyday Buddhism, making every day better by applying the proven tools found in Buddhist concepts. Welcome to episode 27 of Everyday Buddhism, making every day better. That was a long time between episodes, wasn't it? It was a whirlwind time period for me. Our little family was adjusting to the loss of our dog, Bach, in early April. You know, his, sis, his sister, Bella, uh, you know, he took, she took a while to adjust to being the only dog in the house. Um, and Renee and I had both emotional and daily habit adjusting to do. We still miss our Bach uh, terribly, but, um, you know, it's, it's part of life as, as, as the poet, the Zen poet said, a world of do, a world of do, and yet, and yet, um, Bach and Bella were litter mates and their 14th birthday was just this past week, June 5th. So additionally, and to the, uh, the loss of Bach, we my coaching practice schedule was just jam-packed. It was just an amazing couple of months. And I've been, at the same time, been working hard to finish the first draft of my upcoming book on the target date, which was the end of June, the first anniversary of this podcast. It's going well, and uh, you can look for it, hopefully, by the end of the year, and hopefully a little earlier than the actual end of the year. Plus, I've been preparing to officiate our niece, our niece Samantha and her, her fiancé Andrew's wedding this coming Saturday on June 15th. It's an honor to help them make their ceremony special as they are a very special, warm, and loving people. They bring a lot to the world as individuals, and uh, I know they're going to burn it up as a couple so please wish them well in starting their new life together. And this is a shout out to Samantha and Andrew. Although this may sound like excuses for taking too long to get the podcast recorded and released, I did want to share a little about what's going on in my life. Ever since the starting of this podcast, my life seems to have a direction of its own. Planning, starting, and participating in so many activities, you know, related to what this podcast has become, and conversing and meeting with so many wonderful people, including our new Everyday Sangha. You know, I think uh, any of you who listened to the last episode that week, um, our Everyday Sangha was launched on Thursday, April 25th. I've been busy trying to create a good format and infrastructure for the Sangha, and I'm Happy to report we had our fourth Sangha virtual Zoom gathering this past Thursday evening on June 6th, and it's off to a wonderful start. But if you're interested, you know, it's not a closed group. You can join at any time, and I think uh, it's, it's surprising to find, I think some people have been surprised to find that the virtual Sangha doesn't feel virtual at all. It's, we see each other's expressions, we share questions, emotions, and discussion. It feels like we're sitting together. So if you don't have the benefit of being close enough to a Buddhist center, temple, or practice group, um, and you can't participate in a sangha, 
or you haven't found a sangha that you feel comfortable being a part of, feel free to give the Everyday Sangha a try. We meet every other Thursday evening at 8 p.m. United States Eastern Time via Zoom video conference. You can find instructions and a link to join on the Everyday Buddhism website uh, or the Everyday Buddhism Facebook page or the Everyday Buddhism Public Facebook discussion group. We would love to have you join us. So after all of that, now it's time to talk about this podcast episode. Instead of on and on about how I spent my spring vacation. (laughs) So today, as is my habit of jumping around a bit in the writing and scheduling of these podcast episodes, we're going to go back, jump back to the Eightfold Path. Finishing our initial tour of the Eightfold Path with a discussion about the seventh and eighth steps of the path, which are right mindfulness and right concentration. They're also referred to as right mindfulness and right meditation. As I mentioned before, you know, the Eightfold Path is a group um, that is, it's a holistic group. It's not a path. And the sort of the holistic group um, is segmented into three sections or classified in in three sections uh, as wisdom, ethics, and meditation. The first two of the Eightfold Path, Right View and Right Intention, are grouped under the wisdom category. The next three are grouped under ethics, which that's right speech, right action, and right livelihood. And the last three, under the meditation or mental discipline category, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Today, we will discuss the last two of the mental discipline teachings, since we already talked about right effort in another episode earlier. So, I will refer to these two as right mindfulness and right concentration, even though they are many, many times referred to as right mindfulness and right meditation. Uh, instead of breaking these out, this out into two podcasts, which I might be making a mistake about because this might run too long, but I am approaching it as, as if they are tied together because they are tied together under the now culturally familiar, or should I say oversaturated, concepts of mindfulness and meditation that's sort of seeping into and becoming pervasive in the media and the culture. So they seem to be, right, mindfulness and right concentration, that seems to be um, describing the same general activity of mind or mental discipline, but they're different. They're different, yet I propose that without one You can't know the other. Mindfulness is an openness of mind, allowing all mental and bodily experiences to be in mind. In other words, to be conscious of what you are doing or to be aware. We could just call that general awareness. Mindfulness in this use comes from the Pali word sati or the Sanskrit word smriti, which means mindfulness, awareness, or to be remembered, or retention. Meditation, or concentration, 
is a direction of thought or an effort toward a single focus of thinking. It is derived from the Sanskrit word samadhi, which means to collect or bring together. This bringing together is why it is also referred to as right concentration. And to complicate matters even more, it is also associated with the word shamatha or calm abiding, a term you may have heard in relation to a type of meditation. Applied to meditation, shamatha and samadhi refer to a focused or one-pointed concentration with the intention of meditation. But an important point to help distinguish the relationship between these two things, mindfulness and concentration, is to ask what directs the thought or even who directs the thought. You know, any being can concentrate. Just watch a cat or a hawk focusing on their prey for hours on end. Right concentration is different because it is unified by intention, by right intention. When we concentrate with a combination of right intention and right effort, the horizon of our mind shifts. You know, in more recent studies of uh, uh, science called neurotheology, it's the study of the identification of whether the biological basis of the religious experience, studying whether our minds create God or maybe God created our minds to apprehend God. So in that study, they discovered that Tibetan Buddhists and Franciscan nuns seem to cease the activity of the parietal lobes, which are lobes in the upper back region of the brain. And this hap- they, they cease during meditation and prayer. This region of the brain determines how we understand our body's position in space. You know, where self ends and non-self begins. That discovery that those lobes go quiet explain maybe why many have experienced or described the feeling of being on a higher plane during meditation or prayer. If there's, you know, if if it goes quiet and sort of the sense of where our self ends and our non-self begins, if it's fuzzy, then we feel like we're not this distinct self, right? I have experienced this during meditation, and I have talked with people or read reports of others who have experienced it too. It seems that meditation and prayer dissolve the sense of separateness and therefore, you know, heighten a sense of interconnection. This hints at the modifying effect or change that can take place when you meditate or pray. This is the intention we should hold when we practice mindfulness, to eliminate our sense of separation from others and from life as it is. I'm going to go on a bit of a tangent here. This is one of my issues with too much of the the popularization of mindfulness to the point of it being a sort of... uh, 
technique to be more productive, a technique for corporate success, a technique for leadership success. All of that's great. Um, but in the grand scheme, is it helping our sense of connection to others? And that's when what I think when a thing like meditation is separated from um, separated from the from where it came, like separated from Buddhism, um, it, it loses sort of the reason for its being. So if our target is to eliminate our sense of separation from others and from life as it is in meditation, we have to ask the question, you know, how do we do it? <laughs> there is a story about the Buddha and a philosopher. The philosopher, philosopher asked the Buddha to explain his practices toward the goal of enlightenment. And the Buddha answered this way. He said, we walk we sit, we bathe, we eat. Well, the philosopher responded much like I think I would and maybe you would respond to that answer. Well, he says, everyone does that. How is that special? The Buddha answered, we know we are walking, sitting, bathing, or eating. Others don't. Now, any of you who have tried meditation or tried to keep your mind on a single task or keep your mind off of a subject, knows how hard it is to direct thought. Like, don't think of an elephant. You just thought of an elephant, didn't you? <laughs> and then how many of you have driven home from work, reached your parking spot or driveway, and not have the foggiest remembrance of the ride home? Pretty scary, huh? This proves that we don't know what we're thinking or what's going on around us most of the time. We aren't mindful or aware, and we certainly aren't focused on what our thoughts are and what our bodies are experiencing, unless it is an experience of pain in body or mind. I think this is the key to Buddhist practice. If someone were to ask me what I thought the most important thing to know about Buddhism is, it would be that it teaches you the importance of and joy in being aware of what is. Mindfulness or awareness is concerned with reality. It is clear seeing of what really is. And this goes a long way to demystifying Buddhism, and it might also take away the mystique or romance for some. But the Buddha didn't teach enlightenment as an escape and meditation as the vehicle to transport your escape to another world. Nope, I don't think so. I think the Buddha taught that enlightenment is truly seeing and being in the life you are in. Let's think about that word, enlightenment. Enlightenment, it means to make something light, or to shine a light on, or to make clear. He taught that enlightenment. So mindfulness is really the starting point to Buddhist practice because it teaches us to be aware of what, what is, is. Did you get that? We're aware of what is, is, what it is, right? I can say that a million different ways and hopefully one of the ways connected with you. 
The pioneer teacher Joel Goldstein calls mindfulness the central practice of the Dharma and the critical first ingredient in the Buddha's recipe for enlightenment. As you are now very familiar, it wouldn't be a study of Dharma if there wasn't a list explaining a concept or practice in detail. And yep, there is a list related to mindfulness. The Buddha taught the principles of mindfulness as the four foundations from the Pali Canon in both the middle-length discourses of the Buddha and in the long discourses of the Buddha. Which all that long discourse is that's also the one that includes the ex, explanation of the four noble truths. So, but we're talking about the four foundations now. So, the four foundations he explains like this, uh, and this is a quote from the long discourse Here, monks, a monk abides contemplating body as body, ardent, clearly aware, and mindful. Having put aside hankering and fretting for the world, he abides contemplating feelings as feelings. He abides contemplating mind as mind. He abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects, ardent, clearly awake, and mindful, having put aside hankering and fretting for the world. So the four foundations our being aware of our bodies, our feelings, our emotions, thoughts, and events as they occur moment to moment. This is how the Buddha taught us to gain insight. And this insight will help us overcome our dissatisfaction or suffering. Now, don't get overwhelmed by the terms insight or insight meditation or awareness. And, you know, all the others you might read or hear as you study Buddhism, mindfulness, or meditation. They are terms describing things we already do. They're already part of your nature. The Buddha's teachings teach us how to be 100% in our nature without hankering and fretting for the world. Insight simply means seeing things as they really are. You know, there is another popular story about, and how a, about an elderly grandmother coming to the Buddha and asking how she could possibly reach enlightenment if she couldn't renounce her family life and all the chores and activities she had to do. He told her that every time she went to draw water from the well, to be aware of every single act, movement, and motion of her hands. He said that when she carried the water home in a jug on top of her head, that she should be aware of every step of her feet. And when she did other chores, she should maintain continuous mindfulness and awareness of every moment, activity, and thought. Sounds easy. But if anyone has ever tried this, like in the spirit of Titnat Han or other teachers' instructions, you know how hard it is. Yet to me, this is where the sacredness of Buddhism lives. Being mindful of your life is treasuring your life. Being grateful for everything in your life, all the things you can do, all the things you can see and hear and feel, all the people, animals, and nature you share your life with. You can't help but see that sacredness when you pay attention. 
Another story of the Buddha's teaching illustrates the power and sacredness again of paying absolute attention to what is. One day, the Buddha gathered his most realized disciples as if he was going to speak to them. Instead, he simply held up a flower. One of his disciples, Kasyapa, broke into a big smile, and the Buddha commented, Today, only Kasyapa has understood my teaching. And this Kasyapa became the first patriarch of what has become the Zen lineage. And that brief and wordless sermon of the Buddha is called the Flower Sutra. You know, it's our tendency to always look outside of ourselves for everything, for the answers to why things are the way they are and why they aren't the way they should be according to you. But we are looking with the conceptual mind, the mind that functions naturally in duality, the mind that is looking for something, not just looking at what is. Everywhere in the sacredness of our life, in nature surrounding us, are beautiful things. Basho, one of the most famous Japanese poets, wrote this haiku. Look carefully. The Nizuna blooms along the fence. Ah. Now, the Nizuna is a small wild wildflower that is easy not to see. That is life. Life is full of small flowers that we overlook in our non-awareness, our non-mindfulness. The Zen teacher, Nansen, when asked what Buddhism is, asked what Buddhism is, answered, everyday life. That is one way to practice awareness or mindfulness, by taking the time to really see what's around you. But it is also a matter of the four foundations of mindfulness that the Buddha taught. So the four foundations are mindfulness of the body. Mindfulness of body is done primarily by being mindful of our breathing. The Buddha advised going to the forest and sitting at the base of a tree. You know, and for me, that's my preferred location. Not always literally sitting at the base of a tree, but in nature, even if it's in my backyard or on a walk at a local park or trail. But wherever we sit or walk, if we find a quiet place and just breathe, breathe in and out mindfully, knowing but not controlling the breathing out and the breathing in, knowing but not controlling whether your breath is long or short. You know, this is a deceptively simple practice. It sounds easy, but is remarkably, it is remarkably tricky and equally profound. Some of you are probably aware, are aware that no matter how committed and sincere you are, the mind has other plans. It will typically rebel and race off everywhere else but watching the breath. And you'll be confronted with distractions, memories, fantasies, plans. And as Stephen Batchelor points out in, in The Awakening of the West, quote, one is forced to confront the sobering truth that one is only notionally in charge of one's psychological life, unquote. Weird, isn't it? <laughs> when I sit, all the things I need to do, should do, circle round and round and round in my mind, taunting me, taunting me like Mara. The other practice taught by the Buddha is to be aware of not just our breathing, 
but of our walking and our standing and our sitting and lying down to know that we are doing those things. The Buddha also taught to reflect on our body's impurities, to sort of separate and contemplate the four elements in our bodies, you know, earth, water, fire, air. See, being aware of the elements helps us to understand that our bodies are made up of parts or components or aggregates. And, and, you know, there are the five aggregates. I think we might have touched on this before. They're also referred to as skandhas in Sanskrit. And these are form or matter, sensation or feeling, perception or cognition, mental formation or mental habits, like the thoughts, ideas, opinions, compulsions, and consciousness. These are the things we mistaking, mistakenly cling to as self. So if we allow ourselves to focus on these elements in our bodies, like a, either the the earth, water, fire, air, or what's look at what's happening, um, what's going on. Is is it a sensation or a feeling? Is it a perception or cognition? Am I seeing a form? Um, or am I overcome by thoughts? The more we can find, look at these as like things, little little things that are going on, despite what we might want to be thinking of or be focusing on, like despite focusing on our breath, the more likely we are to understand how we aren't the self we think we are. So that's the, uh, the, the first foundation. The second is mindfulness of feelings and mind. The second and third is mindfulness of feelings and mindfulness of mind. So contemplation or mindfulness of feelings is another good practice because feelings typically arise, take us over, get us to act, whether that's advisable or not, and then they go away. If we made a habit of just watching them, just watch the feelings, see how they rise up, wash over us, and vanish. They vanish all by themselves. We don't have to do a thing. Yet if we cling to those feelings, we give them energy and a lifespan that they wouldn't naturally have. Now, contemplation of the mind is to watch and notice how your mind is disposed, inclined, or influenced. The Buddha asked his monks to check their minds to see if there was lust, hate, confusion, distraction, concentration, or liberation. Again, the key here, too, is just to observe the mind states without judging them or identifying them as me or mine, good or bad, this or that. The moment we identify with feelings and mental states is the moment we have become imprisoned by them. Contemplation of mind objects is essentially a contemplation of things or a manifestation of reality. What is a mind object? That sounds very confusion, confusing. But when you think of it, the objects outside, the things that we perceive, like I'm, look, I'm looking out the window at a tree right now. Perceiving that tree is a mind object. You know, the tree exists, but unless my mind uh, objectifies it or sees it, or brings it in, it, it's not anything. So what the Buddha meant when he taught the four foundations is contemplation without grasping at anything in the world, or contemplation without conception. If I look at that tree and under, and not start putting labels on it, like it is a, it's an evergreen tree, oh, it needs trimming, it's touching the roof, um, um, or any other thing about the tree, 
then I'm conceiving the tree rather than um, just ha understanding that I'm aware of the tree. So this is sort of like the mechanics. Uh, this the typical like Buddhist presentation. Like we got the list down. Here's the foundation. That's why he called it the four foundation. This is the mechanics or the structure. But how do we, you know, how do we put it into practice in real life? We can practice impartial impartial watchfulness or bare attention to the present moment without conceptualization, without elaboration or comparison. We can remember pay attention by using mindfulness bells. This is what Thich Nhat Hanh does at his retreat centers. Throughout the day, mindfulness bells are sounded, reminding participants to stop and be aware of what is right there in the present moment. Be aware of body, feelings, thoughts, and things. We can use any sound, you know, in our own practice and not at a retreat center, in our everyday life, in our home, in our work, in our commute. We can use any sound or activity in our daily life as mindfulness bells. You know, your smartphone, every time it dings a notification, um, your clock, you can actually set a notification for your phone to ding every hour. Um, or anytime you walk through a doorway. Or anytime you touch water, like wash your hands. Or anytime you climb stairs or stop at red lights. Or, as my sensei suggests, anytime you go to the bathroom. It's a great time. We use bells to check ourselves. Are we living, truly living in this moment? Or are we embroiled in a mental story of the past or the future? You know, the breath is the, the one that's typically focused on because it is really the perfect object for a mindfulness focus. It's hard to conceptualize breath. That makes it easier. You know, you can't really breathe wrongly or rightly. You just breathe. So it's very hard to put those labels or concepts on it. You know, I especially love Suzuki's teaching on the breath in the book Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. He teaches that the breath is the swinging door, quote unquote, for our interconnection with all beings. He says, our mind always follows our breathing. So he goes on to say, when we inhale, the air comes into our inner world. When we exhale, the air goes out to the outer world. The inner world is limitless and the outer world is also limitless. We say inner world or outer world, but there's just one world. When we call I, what we call I, is just a swinging door. You know, it moves when we inhale and when we exhale. It just moves. When your mind is pure and calm enough to follow this movement, there is nothing. There's no I. There's no world. There's no mind nor body. Just a swinging door says Suzuki. If you're walking in the woods, you're breathing together with the trees. The trees take our out-breath and we take their exhalations. We're breathing together. They take our out-breath, we take theirs. Mindful breathing is something that can be done anytime. It's like a quickie meditation. If you can't find time to meditate, don't worry, do mindful breathing. It will calm your body still your mind, and bring you immediately into the present of what is, if you let it. 
but you could eat mindfully, brush your teeth mindfully, clean house mindfully, walk mindfully, watch your thoughts and feelings mindfully, focus your attention on a single object like that is not your breath, like a mantra, a koan, a deity visualization. It's all meditation. But then there's another kind of meditation, the sitting meditation, the shamatha or calming or concentration meditation, which can include meta practice or any single pointed focus. And there's vipassana or insight meditation, which can include movement and walking meditation. There's analytical meditation that focuses on an analytical topic like the four thoughts that turn the mind to dharma or the four noble truths or any other topics. And then there's zazen, just sitting, meaning seated mind. And there's Tibetan or generalized visualization meditation practice. Shamatha is said to be becoming absorbed into the object. And Vipassana is said to be knowing the object. So through meditation, we can see that we aren't our thoughts or feelings, yet we typically think we are. We become abducted by our thoughts and feelings, so much so that the mind sometimes seems a dangerous place to go alone. The trick is to be patient and kind with yourself when starting or continuing meditation. You know, I think Americans are particularly hard on themselves, which is why I frequently hear people saying, I just can't meditate. Yet there is nothing difficult about it. It is, after all, just sitting or just breathing. But when folks first start meditate to meditate, they'll say, but I have all these thoughts and feelings and aren't I supposed to stop my thoughts? <laughs> of course not. You can no more stop your thoughts than you can purposely stop breathing. However, when you begin to watch them, your thoughts will tend to perform for you like two-year-old children or monkeys uh, jumping about frantically, purposely trying to distract you. That's why they call it monkey mind. Or you get plagued by bodily sensations, itches, hot, cold, pain. I admit I am frequently attacked by labels and clothes. I never feel them any other time, but boy, if I sit to meditate. <laughs> so speaking of attacks on meditation, I have another list for you from the Dharma. It's called the five hindrances to meditation. You know, there are hindrances to meditation, and of course they are numbered for us. The five hindrances are desire, aversion, sloth, restlessness, and doubt. I think those five hindrances could be applied to almost anything we try to do, right? When we think about it. Yet when we meditate, we more easily notice them. Because this is one time where we are really watching what we're thinking. Because we are watching our thoughts and feelings, we will be more likely to notice these hindrances like doubt or restlessness. And when we do watch them, we will see the demonstration of impermanence. You know, restlessness will arise, and then it will fade away. Desire, that cookie on the kitchen counter while you're meditating, the thought of that, the desire for that will arise, and it will fade away. That's the beauty of impermanence. It's a self-correcting system. No effort needed on your part. Just wait. It'll fade away. If you don't judge any of these hindrances as hindrances or label them as anything else, you will remain in what meditation masters call 
quote, the view or the big mind or Buddha nature. This is the view that is beyond the distortion caused by judgment or conceptualization. It is a total clarity of things as they are, like a mirror. You know, a mirror doesn't censor or conceptualize about what it's going to reflect today. It reflects on what's in front of it. Your mirror-like mind does the same thing, if not encouraged to conceptualize or judge or attach or dismiss. Things will appear and disappear, just like that. In this respect, if you try to maintain a, per, a particular state of mind, whether you're meditating, working, eating, sleeping, working out, or whatever, then your life becomes your practice. The venerable Kalu Rinpoche, who passed away in 1989, was a senior meditation master of the Kagyu order and teacher of the Karmapa and the Dalai Lama. He wrote this, quote, We live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. We are that reality. When you understand this, you see that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. You must continue to look inside to be able to see what you are, that you are nothing. You have to understand that from your own perspective and not anyone else's. As I have talked about and written before, the Tibetan word for Buddhist is nangpa, or insider. It is only in our looking inside will we discover answers to any of our questions or solutions to any of our problems. It is only through seeing our thoughts clearly and the actions they produce can we stop the causes of our own and our other suffering. You know, it is said that when you stop all the causes of suffering and do it for the good of all beings, then that's when you've reached enlightenment. So when we try to develop this mindfulness, we are working to create a positive groove, a settling in, to create a habit of mind. And this takes time. It's not about rocketing to the top, achieving or grabbing the brass ring of enlightenment. It's a slow process. Letting mindfulness slowly diffuse through our mental processes, emotions, and physical behaviors until unwholesome mental states and emotions are derailed. David Brazier says, quote, Buddhism is something we practice, not something we figure out. This implies taking the time to create a habit. This implies doing it, not reading about it. You know, you can hear more on the subject of meditation in episode 16, Simple Awareness and the Many Forms of Meditation, where I catalog the different types of meditation and mindfulness practices that span religions and traditions. But I'm, I'm not going to do that here. I'll um, sort of conclude this episode with part of the episode from that Simple Awareness, um, because I believe it's very important to this discussion and worth repeating. You know, awareness, I think, is is the key. Among all the different types of practices of meditation and the current emphasis on mindfulness in our culture, I believe the most important part of mindfulness or meditation is the practice of simple awareness. I won't go into all the different types of awareness or pure presence teachings and teachers. I did that in that other episode. There are so many, including those I mentioned uh, in the episode, like Muji, 
Adia Shante, Eckhart Tolle, Locke Kelly. You know, they've emerged from a lot of different traditions and teaching styles, including modern non-duality or Advita movement, um, Tibetan Dzogchen and Mahamudra traditions, and the self-enquiry method of Bhagavan Sri Ramana Maharishi. With this form of meditation becoming so popular, it wouldn't be at all difficult to connect with teachings through books, websites, audio CDs, podcasts, or meditation apps if you're interested in in getting into a particular um, practice tradition. But let's just talk about simple awareness. How many times in a day are you truly aware? Or maybe I should be more precise and say, how many times are we truly aware Being aware, that is really at the heart of the matter. Awareness is simply that. It doesn't have to be aware of something. That would be dualistic. Our minds are aware by their very nature. They're just sitting there being aware. Yet that nature is obscured by thoughts, emotions, like the clear blue sky is obscured by clouds. Sometimes the clouds are white puffy clouds. (laughs) Sometimes they're dark and angry. But we don't normally judge or conceptualize the clouds unless we are planning an outside event. And we have confidence that the clear blue sky is there behind them. But like I said earlier, we are generally not aware of that clear mind of natural awareness because we've been kidnapped by a train of thoughts and the emotions they kick off. You know, getting to know awareness is easier if we first practice meditation with an object, like the breath or a mantra, or gazing at a candle. When we are meditating on the object and we become aware that we lost the object of meditation in a journey on that train of thoughts, at that moment, we've actually become aware. So it's not a, it's not a negative, it's a positive, as long as we don't judge or criticize ourselves for letting thoughts carry us away. That's why When I'm working with a coaching client in the practice of mindfulness or meditation, I tell them when they become aware that they are lost in a thought, it's a huge success and something to celebrate in the practice of meditation. If they can notice it, if they can be aware of it without judgment, they have successfully experienced a moment of clear awareness. That clear awareness can be the object of meditation. It exists between our thoughts. It exists underneath our emotions. And if we are meditating on the arising and passing away of thoughts and emotions, I encourage you to look for it. Look for it, but don't chase away the thoughts or judge the thoughts as all getting in your way. Just quietly observe the arising and passing away of thoughts and then be aware of the space in between. If you look back or look in, you'll spot it. You may only notice it for a few seconds or even one second before you will be kidnapped by another thought or emotion, but don't beat yourself up. You will notice it and you will be aware of noticing awareness again. Our problem tends to be that we try too hard. We grasp at being a meditator. We cling to doing it right, trying not to think. And as soon as we do that, we've put a death grip on the relaxed and spacious awareness that is our mind's natural way of being. And if we tend to think the opposite way of going into our meditation practice with sort of the goal of 
chilling out or being calm, then we are more likely to drift away in a daydream, allowing that thought train to kidnap us until we are a million miles away. You know, to catch a glimpse of awareness, it's best to be like Goldilocks, looking for a space that's not too hard or not too soft. Or, as the story goes, the Buddha taught the method for meditating properly is like that of getting the perfect sound out of a stringed instrument, with the strings not too tight or not too loose. So our mental attitude around awareness and meditation should not be too concentrated or too relaxed. A good way to investigate this or look at it for yourself is to think of moments in your life where you experienced, even briefly, a sense of being aware of yourself in life. Being aware of yourself as part of an experience in life while not feeling yourself in that awareness, sort of like observing yourself. There are a few times in life where I have been aware of myself in life as life, Some people refer to them as peak experiences or moments of insights, a glimpse of everything as perfection and me a part of that perfection. But they've been far too rare and really only glimpses, and it's only relatively recently that I've actually been able to experience those moments or recreate that kind of moment by seeking after it using a meditative awareness practice. Typically, the way I've been able to experience moments of awareness in my meditation practice is to start with my typical meditation practice, which for me is using the unified mindfulness see-hear-feel practice. My typical object of focus is either hear-out, using external sounds as my object of focus, or sort of a do-nothing, see-hear-feel, where it's more like just sitting with an awareness of everything I'm seeing, hearing, and feeling. I believe I posted the link to the free course on the Unified Mindfulness Technique before, but I'll do so again under this episode on my website for any of those who are interested. So how I, how I do this, how I get to this awareness practice is after I've been stable in this hear-out practice and I've opened my thought space, allowed, allowed thoughts to come and go without chasing, I turn my awareness or of sound, I, or I turn that hear-out feeling, I just turn it quite around, and I use this technique taught by Locke Kelly, where I note that I am hearing, and then I turn my awareness back around at myself and ask, who is hearing? At that point, my awareness will typically unhook, as Locke Kelly refers to it, from that th- little thinking area inside my forehead, you know the one, you've got it too, and then shift either down to my heart or outside of myself, typically beyond the back of my head. At that point, I become aware of a spacious awareness that isn't hooked or anchored in that little part of my head or hooked inside of myself. Prior to actively practicing this, I only merely found myself in this experience of spacious awareness, but now I'm able to sort of recreate it. And it it really is easier than it sounds like it would be. I encourage you to try it. And a lot of times you can just get this feeling of awareness by just being in a relaxed place, maybe in nature, open up to everything that's happening. It's kind of like doing see, hear, feel. And then, you know, look at what you're see, hearing, and feeling, and then look back at yourself being aware of that. And then so you're glimpsing your own awareness. 
so like I said, previously I had these experiences of awareness. As a child, I would get these peak experiences just sitting with my back against a tree like the Buddha recommended, having no idea that the Buddha recommended that, watching a squirrel. And as an adult, I had vivid examples. One occurred on a late September afternoon. I was standing on the deck of a friend's condominium, which was built into the side of a steep hill overlooking Canandaigua Lake, one of the Finger Lakes. While my host and the other guests went into the condo, um, I remained watching this lone turn ride drafts against the dark, cloudy sky. That was it. But time stopped, thoughts stopped, my sense of self stopped, and as I seemingly became a part of the turn, the golden and red trees on the hill, the sun and the clouds, I became exhilarated with an immense joy beyond reason or cause. You know, I wanted to describe it to my companions when I joined them again, but I had absolutely no words. Another of these experiences, I was watching our Labrador and German Shepherd mixed dog, Ayla, um, contentedly chewing her chew toy. This was years ago. She's long since gone. But my awareness expanded beyond myself as me. It, watching her chew, I seemed to become both her chewing, you know, like her chewing and the chewing and the me that I didn't identify with, but I was aware of. So it was like a, a total uh, comprehensive uh, understanding of all these sensations. Another day, I glanced out the window near my desk, taking a break from my work and computer screen, and I noticed my elderly, elderly neighbor brushing the snow from his car. You know, I watched for a few minutes that seemed like hours. Nothing happened that I hadn't seen a million times before, but his slow, you know, slow, attentive, careful, and caring snow brushing sort of penetrated my heart with simple yet brilliant love for my neighbor, for myself, for everyone and everything. Some might describe these experiences as described in the Bible, in Philippians 4, 7. Quote, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Unquote. The Indian poet Rabindranath Tagore was watching the sunrise in, Calcutta, in a Calcutta street when he wrote, Suddenly, in a moment, a veil seemed to be lifted from my eyes. There was nothing and no one whom I, whom I did not love at that moment. See, from a Buddhist perspective, I think of these experiences as glimpses of enlightenment or temporarily experience what is referred to as shunyata or emptiness or suchness. You know, someone has, who has reached total enlightenment is a Buddha. The Buddha referred to himself as Tathagata, which means one who has thus come or one who has thus gone. It means one who resides totally in suchness. Thus gone is to go beyond self. And when one goes beyond self, one lives from the heart. And as Tagore wrote, there is nothing and no one whom you do not love, if even for a moment. You know, the great Pajnaparamita mantra from the Heart Sutra praises this enlightenment with the words, Gate, gate, paragate, parasamgate, bodhisvaha which means gone, gone, gone beyond, gone altogether beyond. Oh, what an awakening, all hail. To truly or 
understand or reside in suchness is as described in the 5th century Chinese Mahayana scripture, Awakening of Faith in the Mahayana, quote, the highest wisdom which shines throughout the world. It has true knowledge and a mind resting simply in its own being. It is eternal, blissful, its own self-being, and the purest simplicity, unquote. You know, my personal experiences and the words I read in the sutras and from teachers past and present affirm to me that awakening is not foreign to us. Now, we not, we're not residing in it permanently, probably, um, but I believe we've all glimpsed it. The Heart Sutra reassures us that we are, in fact, the stuff of suchness. We have this enlightenment potential, enlightenment potential in us because, quote, whatever is form, that is emptiness. Whatever is emptiness, that is form, unquote. You know, you don't have to believe anything to experience this awareness. It isn't the property of any religion, nor is it necessary to believe in God or other religious belief systems or myths. As mentioned earlier, there are many methods used to teach the how to reach this awareness by almost every religion. But I agree with Sam Harris, who wrote Waking Up, and also Robert Wright, who wrote Why Buddhism is True, that Buddhism does seem to have cornered the market in communicating this nature of mind, and that most of the scientific research now done on meditation focuses primarily on Buddhist techniques. But even when not in meditation, it is possible to glimpse awareness, to glimpse this awareness that transcends your drifting into an endless stream of thoughts, then therefore transcending yourself. You may have had the experience while participating in art or sports or fitness. You may have had the experience like I did in nature. It is, as Shunru Suzuki said, quote, when you do something, you should burn yourself completely like a good bonfire, leaving no trace of yourself, unquote. Sometimes when we are completely one with an activity we do, we do burn ourselves completely because we have become the experience. We enter a state of being the experience. You know, one of the teachers of the pure being or choiceless awareness meditation I mentioned earlier, so you've probably heard of him, Arya Shante, wrote that, quote, true meditation has no direction of goal, unquote, and that, quote, it appears in consciousness spontaneously when awareness is not being manipulated or controlled, unquote. You know, to me, this seems to speak to the experiences I had and I shared with you. Although we typically are taught to meditate by focusing on an object, he points out, Adyashante points out, that doing that can cause your mind to contract on that object, and you begin to interpret, conceptualize, and think. Yet, he says, if we just relax into being aware, not of any one object, but of awareness itself, the contraction around objects will relax, and we will relax into a space of receptivity, free of any goal or anticipation. It is there, I believe, that meditation is supposed to take us. Yet, as we have experienced, that awareness is there without even trying. It is the trying that seems to block it. 
You know, some years ago, I gave a Dharma talk about the danger of dedicating yourself to a spiritual path or reaching enlightenment or being a good meditator and the even more treacherous activity in my, in my feeling of being a teacher of the Dharma or, or Buddhist teachings. I called it the Dharma talk, hunting the great awakened, awakened elephant. I explained how attaching to our egos as our refuge is ever-present and proportionate to our desire to attend the end or goal we have set our sights on, whatever that end might be, great meditator, dedicated practitioner, teacher, enlightenment, whatever. It is my experience when I drop all the trying and the focus on some goal or some way to be, I am able to rest in a completely open moment where everything seems so natural or free, or as my sensei, Reverend Koyo Kabose teaches, means equals end. End does not equal means. In that Dharma talk, I shared a Dharma song or poem that first captivated me some 20 plus years ago and still does. I hope you'll feel the same way about it as I do. It is called Free and Easy, a spontaneous Vajra song by Venerable Lama Gendan Rinpoche, who was a senior Kagyu Lama and Mahamudra master. I will end this podcast episode with this Dharma song for your reflection. Happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but it is already present in open relaxation and letting go. Don't strain yourself. There is nothing to do or undo. Whatever momentarily arises in the body-mind has no real importance at all, has little reality whatsoever. Why identify with and become attached to it, passing judgment upon it and ourselves? Far better to simply let the entire game happen on its own, springing up and falling back like waves, without changing or manipulating anything, And notice how everything vanishes and reappears magically again and again, time without end. Only our searching for happiness prevents us from seeing it. It's like a vivid rainbow which you pursue without ever catching or a dog chasing its own tail. Although peace and happiness do not exist as an actual thing or place, it is always available and accompanies you every instant. Don't believe in the reality of good and bad experiences. They are like today's ephemeral weather, like rainbows in the sky. Wanting to grasp that ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. As soon as you open and relax this tight fist of grasping, infinite space is there, open, inviting, and comfortable. Make use of this spaciousness, this freedom and natural ease. Don't search any further. Don't go into that tangled jungle looking for the great awakened elephant who is already resting quietly at home in front of your own hearth. Nothing to do or undo. Nothing to force. Nothing to want. And nothing missing. Emma Hole. Marvelous. Everything happens by itself. You know, that's it for today's episode. 
Thank you for joining me. Thanks to everyone who listens to the podcast. Thanks for putting up with my long absence from this podcast. Thanks to all of you who comment on my website. And I am um, sort of tardy in replying to those, but thank you for continuing to comment. And thanks to those who contribute to comments on the public Facebook group. And of course, to those who have donated to help keep the content written, produced, and distributed. And to help me expand our reach through the public Facebook group, the book study group, and to those who donate to create and sustain our special everyday sangha. Please consider supporting my work with this podcast the Facebook discussion group, the book discussion group, and the Everyday Sangra through a reoccurring or one-time donation at the Donate tab on my website, www.everyday-buddhism.com. Until next time, keep making your everydays better. Yeah.